so thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that calls together zealots and tax collectors, as well as lawyers and police officers. <laughs> um, brings us together under one family. Um, this morning, we're going to be uh, kicking off uh, a summer series, teaching series. Uh, if you've been here uh, for a while, then you know that we've uh, been in Isaiah, and that's been really awesome. We're going to take a break for the summer from Isaiah, and we're going to go back to doing what we did last summer, which is unpacking some of the parables of Jesus. I'm really excited to kick off that series with you this morning. Um, so I'm going to be reading uh, our first parable of the summer from Luke chapter 13. Um, I'm going to start uh, in the kind of the context of the parable uh, in verse 1, and then we'll get into the parable in a second. Luke 13, starting in verse 1. There were present at that very time uh, some who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Um, I didn't introduce myself, sorry. Uh, my name is Josh Parks, I'm an elder here and uh, a member of the Hamptons small group. Uh, that's, you, I don't know if you've <laughs> gone to any other churches, they probably don't announce what small group they're part of <laughs> um, when they introduce themselves, but that's a big part of who we are here. Um, and I'm gonna actually reference uh, a, a small group story in a little while, and you'll see that's a big part of, of who we are at Riverside. Um, so let's jump into Luke 13. In this parable, you see two facets of the character of God um, that kind of uh, play off of each other in this beautiful, mysterious tension. On one side, we have God's righteous judgment of sin. Uh, you can see that in the owner of the vineyard who's anxious for the fig tree to produce fruit and is ready to cut it down when it hasn't. But we also see God's patience with the unrepentant, if you will, fig tree as the vine dresser asks for another year to care for it before judging its fruitfulness. Jesus tells this parable on the heels, if you kind of read, I gave you a little bit of the context there in chapter uh, 13, uh, verses one through five, but the greater context of this parable is really Luke 12, uh, and almost really the, this is the culmination of a lot of teaching that Jesus gave throughout the 
uh, chapter of Luke 12. And the context here is him telling Israel, time is short, judgment's coming. And telling his followers, the disciples, and then the greater group of followers around him, you need to be ready, judgment's coming. Uh, Then, recorded at the beginning of chapter 13, some of his followers tell him about this awful event. This is probably a current event, probably just happened. Uh, Pilate uh, mingling the blood of the sacrifices, uh, mingling the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifices. So probably meaning he, he had them killed as they were preparing sacrifices. Um, and their blood was mingled with this, the, the blood of the sacrifices. Just this awful, tragic event. And they seem to be tossing out this example to Jesus, like, is this the judgment that you're talking about, that you're warning us about? Is this, is this what you mean? But the subtext of the question is, and Jesus gets right to the heart of it. You can see he's like reading, he's reading their minds. The subtext of the question is, these must have been some really bad people, right, Jesus? For, for this awful thing to happen to them, this, is the ju- this judgment, they kind of brought this on themselves, right? And Jesus, reading between the lines, says, no, these people weren't any worse than any of you. But unless you repent, you will experience judgment too. So, all throughout chapter 12, this kind of been this theme and it's been building this tension of like, who is Jesus talking to? Um, there, you, you actually see it, uh, Peter even asks at one point, like he, it's almost like he pulls Jesus aside and says, hey Jesus, are you talking to like, are you talking to us? Are you talking to like them? You know, your, these other followers. And Jesus is like, yes. <laughs> um, I experience this a lot in my work. Uh, my, my day job, I'm, I'm a leadership coach, and I teach a lot of leadership classes. And one of my favorite things as a teacher, and I'm sure most, uh, there's a lot of teachers in this room, I'm sure most of you have the same kind of passion. One of my favorite things, the thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning that's really fulfilling in my work is when, when somebody makes a connection, when a light bulb turns on, when there's an epiphany, um, and, and they've discovered some new truth, um, or aspect to who they are, or a way that they need to change, make a change in their life. And so I'll be teaching some leadership concept, and the greatest thing ever is when I see somebody go, oh my gosh, it clicks for them. And, they, and they, they make a connection that wasn't there before. I love that feeling. But sometimes, and actually happens quite often in coaching sessions, um, I'll see the light bulb turn on for them, and I'm waiting for the epiphany, and they'll go, oh my gosh, my boss really needs to hear this. <laughs> okay? Uh, and, and maybe their boss does. I, you know, it's probably true that they probably made some connection, like, or, or maybe a coworker, a peer, or somebody who works for them. I know somebody who really needs to hear this. Okay, but that person isn't here. <laughs> you are. What are you going to do with it? Um, it happens a lot, but we all have that tendency, don't we? You... you you uh, are very quick, and maybe I shouldn't speak for you, I'm very quick to apply what I've learned to other people. Go, man, I don't really know who needs to listen to this teaching. Um, But maybe slower to apply it to myself. Maybe I have more difficulty um, seeing my own gaps, and I can see other people's quite well. Uh, You know, there's other parables about that as well. 
um, regarding logs and splinters. Uh, we all have that tendency. And so you kind of understand where they're coming from in this moment. They're hearing this teaching about Jesus talking about judgment, and they're going, oh, I know who he's talking about. And Jesus is like, yeah, you, I'm talking to you. This judgment that's coming is, is Israel's judgment. It's you that's going to be judged. Um, so this sermon isn't for other people. Jesus' sermon isn't for other people. It was for the people standing right in front of him, face to face. He wasn't talking to the Galileans that Pilate killed or the 18 people um, in Jerusalem that the tower fell on. He was talking to them. And he says, unless you repent, you will experience judgment too. And then he launches into this parable. So from the context, we know that the, the fruit of repentance that he's talking about here, the, sorry, the fruit of, of the fig tree is repentance. Because that's the context here. He's rep, repent or perish. <laughs> As if for a lot of you, that's probably the, the heading in your Bible over that section, repent or perish. That's the point of Jesus' sermon. And uh, that's the context for this parable. So let's take a moment to pray um, for discernment so we can hear what God has for each of us in this parable. Father, we don't want to be like those who heard Jesus' words and wrongly thought they were for someone else. Give us discernment this morning through your Holy Spirit to hear your word for us this morning and to respond to that word in obedience. Amen. We have two fig trees in our yard. Um, I didn't plant them. They were there when we moved in. Uh, we moved into our house six years ago. In fact, I have a picture of one of them, I think. There it is, that's my daughter for scale. She's four, if that helps, with the scale of the tree. Um, it's eating my shed, as you can see. The fig tree has grown a lot since we moved in. Um, so six years ago, we moved in this house. The fig trees are already planted. They've grown a lot in that time. I don't know how old they are. But a, a fig tree of that size, 10 to 15 feet, can produce 50 pounds or more of figs per year. Now, I was fully prepared to make a joke this morning about how our fig trees have never produced a single fig in the time that we lived there. But lo and behold... Um, on f the other night, <laughs> we're eating on our deck. Dorothy came over for dinner. We're hanging out on our deck, and I'm telling her about this fig tree that, you know, we're, I'm going to be preaching about on Sunday morning. And I look at it, and there's figs on it. <laughs> it's like it knew I was about to shame it in a sermon <laughs> and started quickly producing figs. I don't know. I don't ever remember it producing figs before this week, so that's great. Um, if you like figs, you come over and harvest some. I don't know that we're a fig family, but. So, uh, <laughs> uh, in a vineyard though, our fig trees, and I'd never, it never bothered me that they didn't produce figs, by the way. Because for me, it was, it was, it's privacy. You can see it's on the back edge of our yard. Kind of provides some privacy, shade. And, it, and honestly, I like the way the fig trees look. They're pretty. But in a, in a vineyard, <laughs> Um, and, and by the way, the, the, in the historical context, it wouldn't be weird Jesus telling this story about a vineyard and then a fig tree being planted there. A, a vineyard was just a place where fruit was grown. So yes, there was, there was probably vines, of course, it's a vineyard, but there, it wouldn't have been weird at all for the, the owner of the vineyard to also plant fig trees. This is kind of part of the purpose of a vineyard is to produce fruit. Um, so 
you know, in the in the in this parable, the the owner of the vineyard rightly comes looking for the fruit on the fig tree. That's why he planted the fig tree was to produce fruit, not to look pretty, not to provide shade, not you know, not to provide privacy or any of the things that we've benefited from, but to produce fruit. And so he's right to come looking for it. And you notice that in verse seven, he's not just annoyed that the tree isn't producing fruit. If you look at verse seven, what does he say? He says, why should it use up the ground? The tree isn't a neutral entity in the vineyard. It's either producing fruit or it's using up the resources of the vineyard. If it's not using the nutrients in the soil and the water that it absorbs to produce figs, it's stealing from the vineyard. It's not this neutral entity. And the same is true for us. No one's neutral. Our two possible states are not producing fruit or looking pretty but not producing fruit. Um, We're either producing the fruit of repentance, and I'll explain more about what that is, or we're using up the ground, living in sin under the possibility of judgment. The owner of the vineyard has every right to cut down the fig tree that's not producing fruit. It's his land, it's his vineyard, it's his tree. Last week, James preached, and I love how uh, well his sermon just segues perfectly into this one. He he preached on judgment Um, in Isaiah chapter 9. He describes the judgment of God not merely as anger over sin, uh, but as a product of his love for us. And he, he used the metaphor of a doctor that doctor doesn't just hate cancer, but he hates cancer because he loves his patient and he sees what cancer does to her. The vineyard owner owner isn't just frustrated that there's a lack of fruit on the tree, but of what the fig tree is doing to the vineyard in its unfruitfulness. So cut it down, he says. Destroy it. In a minute, we're going to look at the other side. We're going to look at God's patience and his grace. But we can't gloss over his judgment. If we don't understand both aspects of his character, um, then his, his holy anger over sin and his patience and his grace, we do a disservice to both of them. If God's anger isn't burning against our sin, then there's nothing particularly special about his patience. Just like an oncologist who sees the horrible effects uh, of cancer on his patients, but doesn't really hate cancer, probably doesn't really love his patients. God is angry at sin because he loves us. Divorcing God's judgment uh, and his patience from one another leads us to a warped view of his character in one direction or another. I've seen a lot of that recently on social media, actually. Um, if, if you have any social media accounts, you probably were well aware that uh, the beginning of this month kicked off Pride Month. 
and don't worry, I know that there's kids in the room. I'm not gonna go super deep on this. But I see that two ditches that Christians fall into when there's any kind of cultural affirmation of sin, and it's not limited to just Pride Month. There's all kind, the, our culture affirms all kinds of sin. Um, and I saw those this week in spades uh, on social media. Um, one mistake that Christians make um, is on the judgment side, presenting God as just this angry um, God who hates sin but doesn't care anything about the sinner. And that doesn't resemble the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we, we talk only about, and I, I, again, I, I've seen several anti-pride posts this week that were just about God's judgment, but nothing, nothing about God's love. And when we divorce those things, we present this very one-sided view of who God is. And my question is, like, how, why would non-believers be interested in that God who only hates their sin but cares nothing about them? It's like recommending an oncologist who only hates cancer but cares nothing about the patient. I don't want that person treating me. I want somebody who hates cancer because they care about me and want to rid me of it. The other mistake, the other ditch, is of course affirming sin. One of my well-meaning Christian friends fell into the ditch uh, this week of affirming lifestyles that the Bible calls sinful. In a Facebook post, she said, you're perfect just the way you are. No, you're not. (laughs) God loves you just the way you are. He died for you just the way you are. I know that because his word says that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. But he's not content to leave you that way. You're not perfect the way you are and neither am I. We're both sinners in need of God's grace and forgiveness. As believers, we must not fall into either ditch. We must not uh, present God as this judging and unloving God um, who only hates sin, but we also can't fall into the ditch of affirming sin in ourselves or anyone else as something that's good. This world needs truth and love together. And time's short. Go back to the parable. God's patience is great, but it does have limits. We must not forget that Jesus tells this parable in the midst of a longer sermon about being ready for judgment. His point is this, you don't know how much time you have. The time to repent is now. Many of you know Eric Kimry, one of my best friends, and he was a member here and an elder and he coached football here in Columbia for a number of years before moving to Chattanooga, Tennessee last year to coach at a high school there. And uh, I love, uh, I've actually stolen this and used it in a lot of my leadership classes, but I love the way that he started a lot of his practices. Um, it, it was a kind of a weird way to motivate his players. He'd come in and he, I, you just imagine you're getting ready for football practice and your coach comes in and says to you, men, in 100 years, you and everyone you know will be dead. <laughs> getting high schoolers, I just imagine the challenge of getting high schoolers to, to <laughs> reckon with their own mortality. <laughs> like, it's such a, 
it's such a strange motivational tactic, but he wants to give them perspective. In in 100 years, you're gonna be dead, so make this moment count, is his point, and I love that. Jesus uses the death of the Galileans and those at the tower in Siloam to remind his followers that they don't know how much time they have. When we assume that we have time to repent, we presume upon the patience of God. We see this in Romans too. I'm gonna read, in fact, why don't don't we turn there? Um, If you'll turn to Romans 2. Verses four and five, Paul says, or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So those who only view, who fall into the ditch of only viewing God as patient and gracious, but minimizing his righteous wrath towards sin are storing up wrath for themselves in their unrepentance. A a life of repentance is marked by hating sin in the way that God hates it. Hating what it does to us and what it does to others in the same way that a doctor hates cancer. To paraphrase the Westminster Catechism, repentance is a response to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that leads us not only to recognize the dangerousness and the filth of our sin, but to hate it and to turn away from it choosing instead to walk in obedience. If you're listening to this and thinking, Josh, you're preaching to the choir. (laughs) We're in church. We're the ones who repented. (laughs) I have two things to say. Number one, not everyone in here has made that decision to follow Jesus. Um, And I'll come back to that in a minute. But number two, the fruit of repentance isn't just this one-time decision to follow Jesus, but a lifestyle of repentance. I preached on this last summer. Um, it's kind of funny that I ended up with two, two passages about repentance. I think God is trying to tell me something, uh, maybe, but, uh, or James, I don't know. <laughs> He's the one who signed it, so that may be the better explanation. Um, but I think it bears repeating we have a, and we have a perfect picture of it right in front of us this morning with communion. Jesus instituted two sacraments um, during his life. The first was baptism. And um, we participate that in, in that as Christians one time. As we repent and choose to follow Jesus Christ, we're baptized um, into his death and resurrection. Um, but then the other sacrament is communion, which we don't just do one time, we do it regularly. And repentance is also a part of that sacrament. Um, and and I've, in 
In fact, Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 11, um, in verses 27 through 29, he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Um, He's speaking to the church, speaking to believers, saying this self-examination, this rhythm should be a part of your ongoing life. It's not a one-time repentance. It's something that we do regularly as Christians. It's not a door that we enter, it's a road that we walk on, repentance. It's a regular rhythm of the Christian life, a daily rhythm even. Even beyond the monthly, at least in our church, monthly rhythms of communion. Repentance is a, is a daily rhythm, something that we should be doing every day. One of the marks of this lifestyle of repentance um, is not just repenting to the Lord, but also to each other. The church should be a place where people are constantly uh, repenting to each other, recognizing their sins, confessing their sins to each other, and asking each other for forgiveness. I'm about to get kind of meddlesome um, and speak directly to a specific demographic in the room. Um, But first, I just want you to know that I uh, am preaching to myself here as much as anybody else. Imperfect parents. Are there any of those in the room? You don't have to, oh wow, y'all are very quick to raise your hands and I really appreciate that. Um, It's an awkward question too with so many kids in the room. (laughs) Call yourself out parents. Um, Imperfect parents. One of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is to be someone who practices regular repentance to your children and in front of your children. Fathers, apologize to your wives in front of your children, especially when you've sinned against her in front of your children. They need to see that. Wives, do the same. Apologize to your husband in front of your kids. They need to see that model. And repent to your children when you mess up. Last year in our small group, I told you I was gonna tell a small group story. Last year in our small group, Um, A dad in our small group lamented that he has to repent to his kids a lot. And he was, you know, kind of sad about that. And all I could think was, what a great dad. (laughs) That's awesome. Let me ask you this. Is it better for you to be a perfect parent who never sins in front of your kids, as if such a thing was attainable, or to be a parent who confesses your sin and asks your kids for forgiveness? What are you modeling for your kids? Is perfection attainable for them? No. But repentance is. That's what we need to be modeling. I'm not a perfect dad. But by God's grace, I hope to be a repentant one. One who confesses my sin to my kids. Owns it. Asks for their forgiveness. So much more important than to have repentant parents than so perfect ones. So where does the fruit of repentance come from? Let's look back at uh, at Luke 13, verses eight and nine. And the vine dresser answered the vineyard owner, 
Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. God rightly hates our sin, but he's also patient with us. And the vine dresser doesn't say, let's leave it alone and just see what happens. He says, let me invest more in it. Let me give it more of what it needs to bear fruit. Repentance is a response to the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, not something that we manufacture ourselves. And you can see this at several other places throughout the New Testament, but in one example, um, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.25 uh, that God grants us repentance. In Romans, he says that God granted repentance to the Gentiles. If you've not turned away from your sin, if you're afraid to make that decision, if you don't think you're worthy, whatever your holdup is, if you're struggling to repent at any time, you can pray for God to grant you repentance. And I believe that he loves to answer that prayer, to change our hearts and grant us repentance. If you haven't made that decision yet, God's not done with you. And you know how I know? Because you're breathing. You've been given another day. We don't know, of course, that you have a tomorrow, but you're still, as of this moment, under the protection of a gracious and patient God. A God who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. This table, we're gonna partake in in just a minute, is set for believers who've made that decision, who've been baptized into the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you've not yet made that decision, we ask that you please refrain from participating uh, in this sacrament until you've been baptized into his family. If you wanna talk more about that, what that would look like, I know uh, any of our elders or deacons um, and the women's, uh, women's care team would love to talk to you, to hear from you, to pray for you. We'll move forward to communion in a few minutes, but first let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your patience. Without grace, none of us would be here. Even those who've trusted in you still need your patience every day, Lord. I need your patience every day. Please grant us repentant hearts that hate sin as much as you because we love you and we love the things that you love, the people you love. As we move this morning into a time of reflection and repentance, give us discernment and self-examination that leads to godly grief. Which your word, Lord, says leads to repentance and repentance to salvation. Amen.